You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So as I was preparing for our time this morning, I was uh, thinking back um, to something that happened in my life when I was in college. And it was in the fall, it was about this time of year, maybe a little earlier in September when, when collegiates go off to school. I remember going to school, I went to school down at Southern Oregon State, down in Ashland, land of Shakespeare and all sorts of stuff. And as I walked onto the Southern Oregon campus, I remember thinking, man, I just, this is so intimidating to me. Because for the first time in my life, I was truly out on my own. Didn't know where I was headed, didn't know where my classes were, I mean, it didn't know where my residence hall was, it was all very, very overwhelming. And I remember at the time, there was a guy who um, presented himself to me, he was part of the orientation team at, uh, at the school, we'll call him John, and John showed up and said, hey dude, it's, it's all good, I'm, I'll show you where to go, I'll show you what to do, and, and he was just, he was this great guy, he was really friendly, and he showed me around everywhere, and um, showed me where my classes were, and he, he, was, he was funny. He was so funny. You know, we got into this, this, um, this war with the girls' hall, uh, rather the girls' floor up above our floor, and by the way, they started it, just so we have that, you know, out there. They, they initiated this practical joke war, and so my friend John um, gave me this great idea where one day where, due to his brilliance, I snuck into the laundry room where some of the girls from the upper floor were doing their laundry, and I put in their, in their washer, and some of you have heard this story before, but this pack of Top Ramen with flavor pack. I think it was beef. And I, and I put it in the washer, and this amazing thing happened as it went through the cycle. Noodles went everywhere, and it took them like six loads you know, to get all these noodles out of, their, out of their clothes. Yeah, they really loved us. But that's, and we just went back and forth all year doing this kind of stuff to each other. And my friend John was at the epicenter of that. And John was incredibly spiritual. He wasn't a Jesus follower, but he had some Catholic background and he was very religious. And we talked a lot about what it meant to know Jesus and follow Jesus. And we'd stay up till one, two, three in the morning talking about Jesus. In fact, I shared my faith more in college after midnight than any other time of day, you know, with people. It was just, it was just so cool. And so I'll, I'll never forget this one day as John and I are walking to class you know, we're talking, and all of a sudden, he says, you know, I've, I've got something to tell you. I thought, okay, what is it? And he said, I'm gay. And at that moment, there was this collision of feelings and thoughts and, and beliefs, because I thought I knew what I believed Scripture said about homosexuality. And to me, it had always been an issue. But now, now it wasn't an issue. It was about a person. And many of you have had this experience with a loved one or a friend or a coworker, or another relationship in your life where you begin talking about this and it's no longer an issue. This is a person who's standing before you talking about what they believe is their identity. And so I'll confess to you very openly that I have been thinking about this sermon for months. 
I usually do that with our, our Easter messages and our Christmas messages. I'm, I'm already working on Christmas for this year. I have a pretty good idea of where we're going with that service. Those are the kinds of messages I usually spend a lot of time really thinking about because we get so many people who don't know Jesus who come through our doors during those times, and I really want the gospel to be clear to them. But with this message this morning, I have thought and prayed about this for, for several months, really, because it's so imperative that we understand and speak the truth in love when it comes to every issue that confronts us in life as we think about it biblically, as we think about it through God's lens of how he wants us to live life. So this morning I want us to really avoid two extremes. On one hand, I want to avoid the extreme of condoning homosexuality because if you watch the news, you're continually seeing what seems to be a number of churches who are simply saying, you know what, this, this, this is not a sin, it's just a way of living, and therefore if we're loving, we need to accept this. And, and frankly, I do not believe that is what Scripture teaches. If you were here last week when Gary Brashears walked us through all the Scriptures that talk about homosexuality, you cannot arrive at that conclusion if you were studying the Bible in its entirety and if you were allowing the Bible to speak for itself. It's pretty clear and pretty explicit that that is not what God wants for us, that it is brokenness. However, I also want to avoid the extreme of being condemning because there's so much vitriol that surrounds this issue because it's, it's not just an issue. It's incredibly personal. When you talk about, when we talk about our sexuality in any way, shape, or form, that, that's not an issue. Now you're talking about me, and I, I get that. This is a very personal issue. But at the same time, we need to go there. And despite what Gary said last week, I am not going to be able to answer every question that you have about this. Thanks, Gary. But Gary laid a very significant, compelling, clear biblical foundation for us last week. It was the best message I've ever heard preached on this subject. For those of you who are here, if you have not heard it, you need to go back and hear it because this is part two of what Gary preached last week. My other fear with this is that we not elevate it to a greater issue than it is. The reason we're spending two weeks on this is because this is probably the front and center moral issue in our culture right now. I've watched the news for the last two weeks. There has been a news story about equal marriage or homosexuality every single day. The most recent one has been what's happened in Houston with the Houston mayor who subpoenaed that the preaching notes, the sermon notes of all the pastors in the area because they were preaching against homosexuality in an ordinance that was trying to be passed um, through the city. And so she issued a subpoena and that has just ignited a firestorm of First Amendment rights and all, all sorts of things. But again, it's an example of another way this is an issue that continues to be illustrated um, in our culture. And what makes this further complicated is that if you try to engage and talk about this, if we try to engage and talk about this in a reasonable way in the public arena, what usually happens is this. You're characterized as ignorant, as old-fashioned, as backward from there, it intensifies where you're called a bigot, you're called hateful, you're called intolerant. 
as if this wasn't a difficult enough issue for us to be able to talk about, it's incredibly challenging in that kind of an atmosphere. So as I've thought about this and thought about, okay, where do we go in Scripture to be equipped to engage practically on this issue, I was eventually led back to the church in Corinth. Because 1 Corinthians is a letter that is written to a church that is in a culture very similar to ours. In fact, when it comes to homosexuality, it was a far more prevalent issue in the Corinthian culture than it was ours. In the Roman world, that was something that was rampant. I mean, it, it was accepted in a way that we probably never will see in our culture. Do you realize that 12 of the first 13 Roman emperors were all homosexual? It was just a significant issue. And as the church, we are called to infiltrate culture with the good news of Jesus Christ. But in this example, when you look at the church in Corinth, culture had infiltrated the church. This church was a train wreck. And Paul writes this letter to this church speaking to a ton of different issues that they were wrestling with and and struggling with. And as you look at the progression, as you come up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we're going to look at and use as a jumping off point this morning for where we're going to go, you see him talking about there's divisions in the church, people are aligning with Paul, some people are aligning with Paulos, they're questioning Paul's authority, there's a guy in the church sleeping with his stepmom in the church because they're tolerant are saying, hey, this is okay, there's nothing wrong with it. And Paul says, have you lost your mind? This is not okay. And it's in this context that he begins to steer into what we're gonna talk about this morning. And this is one of my most favorite passages in all of scripture because of the message that it conveys. So we will use this as a jumping off point, but I wanna prepare you. This is not going to be an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter six. We don't have time to do that this morning with the issues that we need to look at. So we are gonna use this as a jumping off point and look at some truths that flavor where we're gonna go. If you want a full exposition of this, I preached on this passage in our Corinthian series some years ago. It's on our website. You can go back and find it there. But if you have a Bible, please open to 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 20, and I'll tell you exactly where we're going to go. We're going to read this, we're going to extract some truths, and then we're going to look at some of the arguments that are going back and forth about this in our culture and try to equip you biblically to engage with those. So here we go. Paul, after addressing these other issues I've mentioned, says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at this next passage. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I have the right to do anything. And now he's going to quote some of their slogans. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And basically the thinking here was, well, you know what? Our bodies don't really matter because we're gonna die. And what really matters is the immaterial, our spirit. That's what's gonna live on. So it doesn't matter how we live our lives. Live however you want. He says, no. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are member of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. And he's quoting Genesis 2 there. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, what are some things we can extract from this? The first is, This is really clear. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. And by the way, a lot of this Gary talked about last week, and I'm very deliberately underscoring it. And we define marriage biblically as the publicly pledged, permanent, exclusive, covenantal union of one man and one woman. Okay, straightforward enough. But what we need to understand is God is intolerant of all sexual sin. Did you see the list there? Homosexuality is not the greatest sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, if we were doing this in a series on sexual sin, we would spend far more time talking about heterosexual sin than we would homosexuality because it's far more prolific, far more prevalent, and far more significant of an issue in our culture. And we all start out in the same place broken. Did you see what was in that list in 1 Corinthians 6? I I saw my name in there. You probably saw your name in there in some way, shape, or form. And you know what's so amazing to me is that as Paul writes this letter, as he writes about all these significant issues that are going on in this church, do we realize who is struggling with these issues? the people in the church. His language throughout the letter is brothers or church. This wasn't an us and them thing. This wasn't, oh, this culture that you live in. These were the folks in the church who were struggling with these issues. And I think that's so significant because sometimes we forget the purpose of the church. Because sometimes the church perceives themselves as a waiting room for an interview. You know, when you go into a job interview and you're sitting in the waiting room waiting to be called into the office, what is it that you do? You dress in your best clothes, you put on your best behavior, you've got your resume with you, and man, does it look good. And when you sit down for the interview, do you say, well, you know, I tend to struggle with this? Or No, what do they coach you when you go into an interview? Don't ever talk about your weaknesses. Don't ever talk about your struggles. You want to put yourself forward in the best way possible. Unfortunately, sometimes people think that that's what the church is all about. You dress up, you come, and you don't let anyone see your brokenness or what you're struggling with. Folks, that is not the church. Isn't the church more like a doctor's waiting room instead of an interview waiting room? I was in a doctor's waiting room just last week. My, I hate to say it, but it's true. My right shoulder is impinged just like my left one was a couple years ago. So, it's, you know, so I'm rehabbing it and doing all that stuff. I went in for some cortisone shots. That was fun. 
And as I'm waiting in the waiting room, I'm looking around and going, you know what? There's no one here who feels like they've got to look better than they really are. Everyone looked pretty miserable. No one was there all dressed up, and I'm not saying you can't dress up for church. God bless you if you like to do that. I'm just saying that people weren't trying to be something that they weren't. Everyone was pretty real. You could tell people didn't feel very good. You could tell people had problems. And isn't that what we're called as the church? Is we're called to be real with each other? Isn't the gospel the great equalizer? All of us start out in the same place. All of us are broken. We all need forgiveness. We all need Jesus in our life. Amen? Okay, 10 of you believe that. We'll work on the rest. But isn't that the truth? It is the truth, right? And did you catch what it said here in Corinthians 6? The gospel means life change and hope. Look at that amazing word right there. And that is what some of you were. And I even went and looked the tense of this verb up because I thought, well, what does that mean? This is in the indicative mood and the imperfect tense, which means that this is something tangible, a reality that happened in the past, but it's not yet complete. It's process. Something happened. A change happened, but it's in process. So practically, what does this mean? I mean, let's go there. So does this mean that someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, or to put it even more significantly, someone who is living the gay lifestyle, someone who stylizes and thinks of themselves as gay, is it possible for them to change and leave that in the name of Jesus Christ? Or is this saying that someone who struggles with same-sex attractions will still struggle with same-sex attractions but does not have to live out those attractions through the actions of a gay lifestyle? Does it say that? And the answer is yes to both. I have friends who have same-sex attraction who struggle with that. And I also know folks who have completely left homosexuality and been transformed I think it's both and and both reasonably both are transformation and we need to remember that because there is a big difference between attractions and action and Gary looked at that last week is it possible to have same sex attraction and still love and follow Jesus and still be a Christian? Absolutely it is. Sure it is. So now we get into the arguments. And I have had this discussion with my friend John over the years. We've talked about every single one of these that we're about to look at because I can just hear John's response. I can hear John saying, you know what, Jay? It's not that easy. Because you're talking about an essential part of what makes me, me. This is who I am. God made me this way. How can you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and say that I can change? This This is who I am. One of the many text questions that we've received on this, and I got permission to share this, was this one. How do you have a relationship with a family member who claims to be made gay, claims to love God, and has their identity wrapped up in their lifestyle? That's exactly where 
where this is going and what we're looking at. And, and that, we could spend the rest of our time walking through that. That's not necessarily a simple answer. But, but, but there is a response to that. And it's, and it's here. I love this verse. In fact, I'm trying to memorize it right now because it's so powerful. It says this, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and do you catch what it's saying there? And enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And what did he save us from? Being enslaved by our passions and pleasures not because of what we've done but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit does that sound like any scripture we've read recently that's Corinthians 6 whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life you see our identity is in Jesus Christ we do not have to be controlled by our passions and our pleasures and our culture does not understand this in any way, shape, or form. What our culture says is that you need to follow your heart. Wherever your passions and pleasures take you, that is a good thing. Follow your heart. But Proverbs chapter 4 says, guard your heart. Guide your heart. Because not every one of our passions and pleasures, pleasures are, are, are good. So for argument's sake with this, you know, I have this, this passion to go have sex with other women besides my wife. So would any of us say, that's a good thing for me to go ahead and indulge and go do? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's, that's something you want to do. That's a deep passion within you. So, so go do that. We do not apply this line of thinking to other areas that Scripture speaks to in our life. But somehow this argument comes up Again, even among unbelievers who say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not, well, not every passion or pleasure is, is a good one. And at the other end of this, our true self is to live for Jesus and be like Jesus. We, we were not created to be ruled by our passions and our, and our pleasures. That, that's not what makes us us. That is not our identity. And I think this is at the heart of this entire issue and so many other sin issues that we struggle with is identity. This is our identity. And our true self, because we're made in the image of God, is to live life for Jesus and like Jesus. That that's where our joy is. That's where our fulfillment is. It's not in status. It's not in stuff. It's not being controlled by our passions. It's not by how much power we have. It's, it's in Jesus. But then the argument comes, well, but wait a minute, okay? We're committed to each other. We love each other. And this is one of the foundational arguments for equal marriage. I mean, what's wrong with, with equal marriage? I mean, if, if, if two people are, want to get married who love each other, then why don't we just say that's okay? Because isn't God a God of love? Isn't God for loving relationships? And this is often substantiated out of verses like Matthew 22, which talks about the two greatest commandments, which are to love God and love people isn't that what we're supposed to do is is to love people and if two people love each other then isn't that okay what how could god not be for that how could we not be for that 
But when we look and see what Jesus spoke to and what Jesus said, separate of what Gary looked at last week, let's just go back to our John series. What did Jesus say over and over? If you love me, you will keep my commands. In verse 23 of John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Or look what he goes on to say in John 15, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, the Bible is the final authority on marriage and family, not government, not culture, not public opinion, not what quote-unquote seems right, because God wants our joy. He wants our fulfillment. He wants our, our best. And if you love God, it means you will be obedient to God, that you will live life and your relationships on his terms. And his terms, as we looked last week regarding this issue, are explicitly clear. The Bible describes all homosexuality as broken and sinful because one of the arguments that's out there from Matthew Vines and others is, wait a minute, Bible's talking about unmarried homosexuality. It's not talking about homosexuality in a committed, loving relationship. That, that is a false dichotomy. That, that's absolutely wrong that's not an issue of opinion that's factually wrong when it comes to what scripture talks about regarding homosexuality it it, it is broken and it is sinful in every single example because God is the one who defines our relationships okay and I could just hear John now but Jay what you are saying is this if I follow through the conclusion what you're saying so I do not indulge my same-sex attraction anymore. You're saying that I have to be celibate for the rest of my life. And I remember when we first had this conversation years and years ago, struggling with that for him and with him because I care about my friend. Man, I, I, I love my friend. But... I was reminded of, of this reality, and it's, it's this, that when God tells us to do something or not to do something, it's because he wants our best. And I wrote this very deliberately. God wants everyone to be blessed through sexual purity. Everybody. And I remember at the time, I was talking with John when I was a single guy. Jamie and I dated for six years before we got married. She was my high school sweetheart, and then we went off to college. We went to college at separate schools. We did the long-distance relationship before Skype, before texting, before email. And some of you are going, how old is this guy? Old. You know, before we had any of those technologies, it was letters and $5 worth of quarters in a phone, a pay phone, once a week. It was horrible. It was, it was incredibly hard because I loved her and I wanted to be with her but Jamie and I when we began dating made a commitment to each other and the commitment was this we will not have sex together before we get married because if we do our relationship is done we will break up and I remember at the time talking to my friend John as we were wrestling with the reality of what scripture was asking of him and me and looking at him and saying John, it is no different for you than it is for me. I am celibate now too. And it's hard for me too. 
And some of you might think, well, how hard could it have been? I mean, you were a pastor, right? And this was before I was a pastor. I was a 20-something guy with hormones and a smoking hot girlfriend, right? (laughs) It was hard. But what God was calling John to was no different than what he called me to. And I wrote this very deliberately because Jamie and I have been blessed because of that decision. We married as virgins. And don't ever let anyone tell you that it cannot be done. I have little sympathy and empathy for people who try to argue me on this because I've lived it. I've done it. And it can be done. And there has been great blessing as a result for both Jamie and I. And the same promise holds true for my friend John. The same promise holds true for anyone who is single. Whether you have never been married or whether you've been married and somehow have lost your spouse or you're divorced or what have you, God calls you to sexual purity too. And when you do life on his terms and relationships on his terms, there is joy, there is blessing. Is it hard? Sure it's hard. Is it difficult? Sure it's difficult, especially in the culture we live in, but is it worth it? Unequivocally, yes. And the same is true for this issue as well. But then this would be John's response. But Jay, now what you're saying is that for the rest of my life, I have to be alone. Because the difference between you and me is that if things continue on the route they're going, someday you're going to marry Jamie. And you'll get to have these longings fulfilled. But I won't. You're saying I can never get married. And that, that's tough. That is a hard reality. But I would challenge this. Because once again, I think it is false reasoning and it's not true. Because someone can still have close, significant, godly, same-sex relationships without sexualizing them. I know people, men and women, who live out this reality, who struggle with same-sex feelings, who have either left acting out of those feelings or have never indulged those feelings and have experienced this reality. Would they like to have a significant relationship? Of course they would, but they do have significant godly relationships and, and they're not sexual. And they are fulfilled. And we have a scriptural example of this. This is out of 2 Samuel one twenty six. In fact, the next series we're going to do after our Christmas series is we're going to do First and Second Samuel. I'm really, really excited. We haven't done this in 14 years, and I haven't had a chance to do this since I've been a part of Grace. I think it's going to be a fantastic series. And this is describing how David responded when his best friend Jonathan was killed on the field of battle. He sang a song of grief. And this is what he said. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Homosexual proponents will say that this proves that homosexuality is blessed and endorsed by Scripture. And this is not an issue of interpretation. That is factually wrong because that word for love does not mean sexual love in Hebrew. It means affection, and the context is abundantly clear that this is talking about friendship. This is not a bromance. 
This is, you know, not the way our culture stylizes friendships. This is a deep, vibrant, significant, same-sex relationship between two guys that is not sexualized. It's just deep friendship. And it is possible to have deep friendship with, with others, even if you struggle with same-sex stra- same attraction. But it goes on, too, that it is possible, even with same-sex struggles, to find fulfillment in heterosexual marriage. And again, I know folks who are living this reality. They just, they are. If you want a very powerful example, when you get home today, go on Google and search for the Portland Fellowship, which is a ministry right here in our city that ministers to folks who are wrestling with same-sex attraction or who want to leave a gay lifestyle or a gay relationship. And the testimonies there are amazingly powerful. They're gritty, they're real, and praise God, they all reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. They're amazing stories. I I would encourage you to go read them. Which brings us to this. For Jesus followers, let's wrap some of this up here. Again and again and again when it comes to relationships, heterosexual, homosexual, we are told that those things are what are the core of our identity is, and that is not true, and this needs to be repeated again. A relationship does not complete you. Jesus Christ does. We do not define our identity by our passions and our pleasures or even necessarily our relationships. Our identity starts and is rooted in Jesus Christ. And that's true for for all of us. Is it legitimate to want to get married? Yes. For someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction, you know, is is there a longing there that is real? Yes, it's real. It's, It's not fake. But Jesus is the one who completes us. Secondly, man, relationships are complicated. And I know that's not, you know, new news to any of us, but I've been amazed by the questions the good questions that we've been asked through email and texting and phone calls I've had with folks this week. And relationships, they are, they're complicated. And because of that, you're not always gonna know how to respond. You're not always gonna know what to say. I remember when my friend John confided that in me, I I wish I would have responded better because there was a long period of silence when he, and we just kept walking because I didn't know what to say. And here he was entrusting this very personal part of his life to me, which was very profound and very brave for him to do, to let me in and to be that honest. And I didn't know what to say. And I wish I would have said, you know what, John, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to say. You know, but, but I'm really glad we can go here and talk and that you trust me enough to talk about this. And that's a good, reasonable response. You're not always going to know what to say as you're, as you're talking with folks, not just about this issue, but all sorts of relationships issues. And because of that, remember, you are competent in Jesus. One of the significant things, many significant things that Paul says to the Corinthian church in this very passage is right before this, he's talking about the fact that they are suing each other in the church. Believers suing believers. And he says, you guys... Seriously, J translation here. But do you realize that someday we are going to judge angels with God at the final judgment? Are you not competent enough to settle the differences among yourselves? 
And the truth there is, through Jesus, we are competent to navigate the complexities of relationships. Even when we don't know what to do, even when we don't know what to say. Of course we don't know what to say at times. Of course we don't know what to do at times. That's, that, that really is okay. What we are called to do, though, is to be clear with the gospel and confusing to our culture. And let me define that. We are to be clear in who Jesus is and what Jesus calls us to do. And one of the questions that we got this last week that was texted in was, what did Jesus talk about when he hung out with sinners? I mean, do, do you remember the, this passage from last week that Gary took us to, Matthew 9, where he showed us that sarcasm is biblical, right? I mean, that was hilarious, but we'll come back to that. When the Pharisees saw this, Jesus spending time with all these broken, sinful people, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And we know that the Pharisees weren't spiritually healthy, right? But he was exaggerating to make a point here. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Because sometimes when it comes to difficult issues, hard issues like this, we as the church and as individuals can tend to withdraw from those relationships and those situations. That's exactly the opposite of what we are called and told to do. When John confided in me that day, this part of his self-identity, that he was gay, one of the things I wrestled with was, okay, do, do I break off this friendship? I'd never known a gay person before, so how do I, you know, how do we talk about this? How, how, am I supposed to be his friend? What, what would Jesus want me to do? And what does it mean to love my friend? And one of the things we can do is we can withdraw at that point. That is exactly the wrong thing for us to do. We, we are called to incarnate Christ and to go into the world and to be Jesus. And I long for us, and I pray for us, I pray for you weekly, that we would be confusing to our culture because we are stylized as being condemning because we say that homosexuality is brokenness. And yet, we need to go to the entire community with the love of Jesus Christ. And I long for people to look at us as the church, capital C, and go, you know what? The most loving gracious, giving, sacrificial, loyal people relationally are, are Jesus followers. They may not always agree with, with what we say or what we think or what we do, but man, they love us, they walk with us, they care for us. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. We can't withdraw from culture. We've got to go to culture. And at the end of the day, it means that we believe the cost of trusting and obeying Jesus is worth it. Because when I've walked through the very things we've just walked through together with my friend John, almost after each time we had, had these conversations, he has looked at me and said, it's not worth it. You're asking me not to indulge what I believe is my identity, these passions that I have. You're telling me I'm not supposed to live that out, not be true to myself? It's not worth it. Forget it. And that's an understandable response if you don't know Jesus. Do that for morality? No. 
That's not compelling. Do that because someone tells you to do it? No, that's not compelling. Do it for Jesus, who promises you something better, who gave his life so you don't have to be ruled and controlled by your passions, who is the one who defines your relationships because he wants the very best for you, because he wants to bless you, because he wants you to have life and have it abundantly. You know that God, and all of a sudden, you trust him, and it does become worth it. Because God wants your best. Because God wants to bless. And for all of us, we are called to follow Jesus. And that means there is going to be a cost for every single one of us. But there is reward for that. There is reward for telling the gospel. There is reward for living the gospel. Look at this. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live obediently? to trust Jesus in our relationships, even if it means we don't indulge the desires that seem to be legitimate, that seem to be our identity. Yes, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is, because he's going to reward us for that. So as we, as we end our time here, I just I want to say this. One of the texts that we got this week was are gay people welcome at our church? And the answer, yes. Are, are people who lie welcome at our church? People who steal? People who are critical? And on down the line, of course. We are not an interview room. We are a waiting room to see the good doctor who has something better for us. And we all start out at the same place. We're all broken. But he gives us eternal life. So I, I want to tell you that if you struggle with same-sex attraction, and this, this, this really is a safe place for you. You are welcome here. And, and we invite you to grow with us and to learn what it means to love and follow Jesus. We have a ministry here at Grace called Celebrate Recovery. We would love to offer that as a resource to you. We have community groups um, that we would love for you to be a part of. We have gay folks who are wrestling with these very issues that we're talking about who are a part of our community groups. You may or may not know that, but it is true. Man, you are, you are welcome here. And we're gonna call you unapologetically to love and follow Jesus and to live that out. And for those of you who, who are wrestling with, nah, I don't know if I buy this. I, I don't know if all this is true. I'd like to share with you just one of the testimonies from the Portland Fellowship where this gentleman shares this. God has taught me many things. This last year, I had the privilege of serving as an intern at Portland Fellowship, giving me the opportunity to, quote, comfort with the comfort I have received from God. There have been many times this journey has been incredibly difficult. I've wanted to give up, but God continues to be faithful even when I am faithless. I do still struggle with same-sex attraction, but those desires do not control my life as they once did because God has said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you are struggling and seeking hope, there is hope to be found in Jesus. 
If you are hurting because of your own choices or the choices of others, there is comfort to be found in Christ. And no matter where you've been, what situation you're in, God can reach into the deepest, darkest pit and bring you into the light of his truth. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that as we worship you now that you would continue to speak into our hearts and lives by the power of your spirit. Lord, I thank you that there is hope in you. Lord, I thank you that when you call us to do or to not do something, it's because you love us. You want to bless us. You want what's best for us. But Lord, it's hard to trust you at times with that. It's hard to believe you and take you at your word. God, by the power of your spirit, help us to do that and help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to everyone around us as you have to us. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.